invite you this morning to return with me to the book of Romans, to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, where we will pick up at the point at which we left off at the ninth verse of Romans chapter 3. Sometimes one or another of you will tell me after church or maybe during the week as we meet somewhere along the way how much you enjoyed this sermon or enjoyed that sermon. And um, I want you to know how much I appreciate that and find encouragement in that, even as I hope that your enjoyment in those cases is based on the thrill of hearing God's voice in the sermon rather than some other carnal source. And then again, there are some sermons that simply aren't meant to be enjoyed. Stories circulate, you know, about preachers, especially ones better known than others. Robert G. Rayburn, after whom a chapel at our own Covenant Seminary is named, as well as a hall on our Covenant College campus, is said to have received just such a comment from a lady after worship. One Sunday morning, came out of church, shook his hand, said, Dr. Rayburn, that was such a great sermon. I appreciated that sermon. I enjoyed that sermon so much. To which Dr. Rayburn is purported to have responded, that sermon, madam, was not meant for your enjoyment. Well, no sermon preached in the true spirit of biblical preaching is intended for the enjoyment of anyone but one. The one whom any true preacher seeks to please, God, whose word he preaches. Any true enjoyment beyond that is simply God adding his blessing to his blessings. This is particularly true about the sermon this morning. It is neither intended for your enjoyment, nor will you likely enjoy it anyway. It's based on a text that none of us particularly enjoys hearing. But it is, as always, week after week, God's word, and so to be received, whatever it should bring, with a spirit of submission and ready willingness to hear. Toward which end, let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that you will give us that grace to receive your word, your truth, and to receive it willingly, even those parts that to us are bitter to the taste. Help us to remember, our Father, that this too is the voice of our Lord speaking, and therefore, our God, we pray, speak, for your servants are listening, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I know that I that you have heard plenty of surveys. In fact, they seem to be coming out of our ears these days. So many of them are taken anymore. But let me share with you just one more with you this morning. It's a survey of the opinions that Americans have of themselves. Taken about two years ago and reported last year in the Washington Post. In this survey, 94% of Americans said that they were above average in honesty. 89% above average in common sense. 86% above average in intelligence. And 79% above average in looks. What may we conclude from such figures? Only this, that Americans, like all people, think much too highly of ourselves than we ought. And on the whole, we think, and it is taught in secular academia, that people are basically good. Unless it comes to the environment, of course, of which man is basically bad. But uh, fundamentally, it is widely believed today, fundamentally, that people are good. Basically, fundamentally good. They only do bad things because, well, they were raised in a poor environment, or they were adversely affected by peers who were raised in a poor environment, or they just weren't taught as well, or they were poorly taught in a bad environment. Fitting conclusions for a people who almost universally consider themselves to be above average to draw particularly about themselves. Paul disagrees. In fact, he completely disagrees. He totally disagrees. To the contrary, he says to us, man is not fundamentally, basically good. He is fundamentally, basically bad. Men and women, boys and girls, are basically, when you boil it down, sinful, under sin, Filled with and dominated by sin. And it's precisely at this point that most human beings are most prone to disagree with Paul and take great umbrage with his teaching. And not only with his, but with the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the whole of Scripture. As Reinhold Niebuhr remarked a generation ago, No amount of contrary evidence seems to disturb humanity's good opinion of itself. 
that of all of the people who have ever lived, it is you and I who have the least amount of ground on which to stand in disagreement with the Bible's very uncomplimentary summary of humans and human beings. We who live in the 21st century now look back on the bloodiest century of all of human history. We have in our recent memory the horrors of Auschwitz and a thousand other wartime hells. You might be following the broadcast of Ken Burns' documentary film, The War, on television this week. And if so, you saw the carnage that followed when the American Air Force caught a retreating German army in the open near the French town of Falaise in 1944. The landscape was literally littered afterwards with bloated corpses. As the camera scans across that scene, that gruesome scene, the narrator quotes from General Eisenhower's after-action dispatch, quote, It was literally possible to walk for hundreds of yards at a time, stepping on nothing but dead and decaying flesh. And over and again in this series, we're treated to actual footage of the dead everywhere. Burned corpses, mangled corpses, frozen corpses, bloated corpses, corpses bobbing in the sea, corpses rotting in the jungle, corpses dangling from ropes, corpses piled in stacks, awaiting mass burial. We have in our day seen the bodies hanging upside down, disemboweled in the Cambodian temples and in the killing fields. We know of the wasted millions in Stalin's gulag, and today we live with the daily constant flow of the sewage of crime, violence, rape, abuse, torture, and murder in our own cities. Brothers and sisters of all the people in human history, we must be the least qualified to disagree with Scripture and to agree that man is not fundamentally good. He is, we are, at the root, through the shoot, and to the fruit, sinful creatures. That is what Paul is after in the text before us. If he has, as I've often painted him to you over these past weeks, if he has been a precise prosecutor pressing his case against us all, then what he has done this morning is to deliver a brilliant, irrefutable closing argument. Like the grand finale of a fireworks show, he has heaped blast upon blast upon blast by piling up Passages one on another from Scripture in rapid succession to seal the case. His point, verse 9, we are all under sin. 
Now this phrase, under sin, is a pregnant one. It's also a bit unusual. Paul uses it also in his letter to the Galatians and, uh, and writes, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And in that context, it seems clear that the phrase means more than simply being under the dominion of sin, although that is certainly true. That's the way that John Murray treats this phrase in his commentary on Romans. But it must also speak of being under the guilt of sin and even being in bondage to sin. William Newell, in his classic commentary, puts it this way, quote, it is a general state described as of convicts in a prison or disease-ridden people under quarantine. It gives us the thought that the race has fallen from a good estate into an evil estate. In other words, under sin is, is a way of living It's a way of life for us. It's a way of breathing, a way of eating, a way of talking and of living and even sleeping. We are under sin when we don't even realize it. It's become so much a part of us and we so much a part of it. Living under sin for us is something akin to living underwater for a goldfish. But that does not make being under sin and living under sin more tolerable. In fact, it makes it more terrible. In the verses that follow, Paul develops this dreadful truth as a reality that is universal and a reality that is pervasive. First of all, dear flock, consider the fact that we are universally under sin. That is to say, no one, no one is exempt Paul does not have most people in mind here. He does not have simply the really bad people in mind here or the worst people in mind here. He means all people. And he goes to pains to emphasize his point in pronouns. Verse 9, all are under sin. Again, verse 10, none, not one. And all through the entire paragraph, no one, no one. All, no one, not one. It matters not whether you are a Jew or a Greek, whether you are a prostitute or a parson, a churchgoer or a tavern frequenter. This much is true of you, chiefly true of you. You are under sin. We all are. And we don't have to believe the Bible's teaching about man's sinfulness, about our sinfulness against the evidence of our eyes. G.K. Chesterton pointed out that this doctrine, however unpopular, is the only biblical doctrine with universal, empirical demonstration. One has only to open his eyes and observe the behavior of human beings from the baby in the crib to the most urbane and polished sophisticate to confirm the truth of Shakespeare's line. But I can see his pride peep through each part 
of him. Selfishness, pettiness, bondage to desire are the marks of every human life, and any honest person knows it. The overwhelming power of Paul's spirit-inspired assertion resonates in every human heart, regardless of what that heart does to suppress that truth of the verse. Verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. Now taken on its own, with no reference to what comes after, a person might resist. Might say, now wait a minute. What do you mean none is righteous? Okay, I think I can agree that no one is perfect. God knows I'm not perfect, but I'm righteous. And I know people who are righteous. A young Anglican clergyman once asked Alexander White whether it was not possible here and now to be sanctified and kept free from sin and quoted the testimony of a friend whose surrender had been so complete as to enable him to say that sometimes for days together he had not consciously obeyed God. No, sir, said Dr. White. No man who knows what God is would say a thing like that. No man who has seen the exquisite holiness of God would say a thing like that. This is why Paul is quick to go on in verse 11 and bring God into the argument. Sure, lots of people could make a case for why they should be considered righteous. Not perfect, of course, but righteous. That is especially if they argue their case against the worst examples who ever lived. Remember, 94% of Americans think they're more than average, above average in in, um, honesty. Even a serial killer, a rapist, comes off looking not nearly so bad when compared to Hitler or to Stalin or Nero. But Hitler and Stalin and Nero are not the standards. God is. God's righteousness is the standard. And against that standard, against those righteous eyes that see everything, not only in the outside, but right into the shadowy corridors and and crannies of your heart, none can stand. None can for one minute claim to be righteous under the searching light of the holiness of God. Which brings me to the second point. Not only are we universally sinful, head for head, Jew and Gentile alike, but also consider, second, the fact that we are pervasively under sin. What I mean to say is that we are sinful through and through. Years ago, I read somewhere that if sin were blue, you and I would be blue from the tops of our heads to the bottoms of our feet. But more precisely, we might say that we would be blue from the inside out. Because that's the way Paul develops his argument now in his verses, in these verses. Beginning on the inside, 
the verses Paul quotes from the Bible demonstrate, and these are all, by the way, quotes one after another from the Scripture. I say his quotes from the Bible demonstrate that the heart and and mind of man is under sin. Starting with Psalms 14 and 53, he writes, No one understands, no one seeks for God. Now these are conditions of the heart. That no one understands the things of God apart from God revealing them to him is a commonplace in the Bible. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That hasn't, of course, stopped many people from claiming that they do understand. The books that have been written about God from man's point of view could line shelves from here to Louisville and back. And none of them be worth the paper they are printed on. They're not filled with understanding, they're filled with misunderstanding. One breath of God dismisses them all. You thought I was altogether like you. And I suppose that there are plenty of people who would say that Paul was also wrong about men seeking after God. Just go into any pagan nation and you'll find temples and idols and worshipers packed into them. But in one blow, God destroys that argument and brushes off the place where it stood with this. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. The fact is, No one is seeking after the true God. No one is seeking after the God of Scripture. No one ever would. For the simple reason that no one wants God to be what He truly is. Inflexibly, impeccably, perfectly, holy. No idol, no God sought out by any human being has ever come close to the the one true God who is and who was and who ever will be. Fact is, while men seek after and worship all manner of gods but God, it is God, according to Jesus, it is God who has taken on the role of the seeker. It is God who is seeking those who worship, will worship Him in spirit and Truth and bringing them by the velvet cords of His grace to know, to love, to serve, and particularly to worship Him. So, man to the man and to the woman is under sin from within. And Paul tells us the result in verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. When I was a child, our mother had a large vegetable garden in the backyard. And she would pick the vegetables from there and she would feed us through the winter on the vegetables that she had canned. But uh, come the fall, there were always some vegetables left in the garden. And as children, we would go into the garden 
And there we'd find on the ground a tomato. A perfectly ripe-looking tomato or squash. And I'd reach down to grab it, and no sooner would my fingers touch it, but that they would sink into its slimy innards. And just as quickly the stench of rotting vegetation would meet my nostrils. Now some of them would hold together, we'd pick them up with two fingers like this, and we'd We'd whip them up against the fence and watch them splatter into pieces and disintegrate all over the place. The rest my mother scooped up with a shovel and threw into the compost heap out back. That's the idea here. Rotten from the inside. So every man, every woman, every boy and girl even if they may look fairly decent on the outside, are rotten on the inside. But then Paul turns to the outside as well. And he sees the rottenness has made its ways also to the surface, beginning in the middle of verse 12. No one does good, not even one. Corruption, not holiness, Selfishness, not goodness, cruelty rather than kindness. These are the things that have come to mark the relationships that exist between men far and wide. But you say your neighbor does some nice things for you and you do nice things for him. That may be true that he does nice things for you in a certain shallow sense. But remember the tomato None of you would tell me that it was a good tomato. Truly good, that is, because of its color on the outside. When it's rotted through and through on the inside. What good is a good deed when it's motivated by only impurity within? And then think about the actions of men Every time the external forces of the law are removed, when there are no police, when the government falls apart, when there is no order, what happens? Then you see the true nature of men. Even now, today, in our own civilized nation, alas, even in the church, How terribly often it must be said, not only from the word, but from experience. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Men use their mouths as instruments of destroying others, their reputations, their relationships. Like a rattlesnake that opens its mouth, pulling the deadly fangs from under the lip and then plunging it deep into 
the flesh. So gossipers and whisperers deposit their poison and then eventually even verbally curse others and spread bitterness even between brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, and that is true. True enough on the face of it. Go anywhere in the world. Go to the ERs of our own cities to see that it is literally true. And then taking the Lord's sense of murder, that to hate someone is to kill that person in your heart, means that blood is shed not only out there, out where all those bad people are, but shed even in our own family. Verse 16, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And split families, and split churches, and split nations are the perfect demonstration of the pervasiveness of sinfulness. And now Paul adds the final, most devastating piece. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It is figurative language to be sure, but the most powerful of figures. To have no fear of God before your eyes, that is to be completely godless. It is to give no thought to God, no reverence to God, no allegiance to God, no care for God, no obedience to God. This is the height of Paul's indictment, to be sure. And as Murray puts it, no indictment could be more inclusive or decisive than this one. This is unqualified godliness. Lose the fear of the Lord what Scripture calls the fountain of all true wisdom, and all hell breaks loose. The boundaries of immorality fall in direct proportion to the presence or the absence before the eyes of men of the fear of God. And is that not exactly what we are witnessing in our own place and in our own day? This explains many things, doesn't it? These verses we've just read, they, they explain many things, but they solve nothing. We must know this, we must understand and embrace this in order to be brought to the solution, but it is not the solution itself. It only sends us to it. Or rather, I should say, to him. We'll come to that, the Lord willing, in the next weeks. But for now, I will give you a little bit of a sneak preview. Paul says in today's text that there is no one, no, not one, who is righteous. And he is right, as far as his argument goes. But... There was one, and there is one who was and who is and whoever will be the righteous one. One who sought after God, 
during his lifetime on earth. One who understood and understands. One who never turned aside. Who did good. Unalloyed good. And before whose eyes ever was the fear of God. It is in him and in him alone that we may find that righteousness for which we stand so desperately in need and which we crave the righteousness by which alone we can be made right with God. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen.